All right, we are ready to go again. We have a quiz, the iTunes quiz is up and available today, through today, through 6 o'clock tomorrow, 6 a.m. tomorrow I should say. So if you haven't taken it yet, you still have time. You get three tries on it, so you can take it three times. You get different questions each time, so you can't get the three and then remember them all. You might get some of those again. You might get a completely different set of 12 questions. But that'll cover any of the material on those pictures. I didn't write it up there again, but it was August 20th through September 14th. And then we have a homework that I gave out last time, which is due the end of the week. That'll be due on Friday. That covers just the material on the planets, which we'll be finishing up, unless we have a big delay, should be finishing up today. Quiz number three will be available starting on Friday, which will cover the section on the planets and then into the sun. So it'll actually go on to the sun a little bit. A little bit there. And exam two next week. Yay! Wednesday, which will cover in this class chapter 3, chapters 4 through 8, and chapter 9. There'll be a couple questions from chapter 2 from the little bit on, it was the spectroscopy, how the formation of spectral lines, and the Doppler effect that we did not cover on the previous exam. And then should cover everything through, through chapter 9. Questions? Questions? All right. Picture of the day for today is NGC 2736, the Pencil Nebula. See a nice thin pencil there stretched out in space. What this is is actually a very small part of a, very, of a large supernova remnant. A supernova, something that we'll be studying in a, about a month or a few weeks to a month, is an exploded star. It's a star that's reached the end of its lifetime and it's torn itself apart. It's become unstable in its core and has completely torn itself to pieces. And that shell explodes out from where the star originally was and travels through space at relatively high speeds. This is still moving about 11,000 years after we saw the explosion. It's still moving outwards at about 500,000 kilometers an hour. 300,000 miles an hour. Pretty fast speed. You know. Not going to get your car up to that speed, not going to get you know, the plane, a plane or a train or anything else up to anything close to that speed. But this material at the front is moving that fast, is moving at hundreds of thousands of miles per hour and was moving much faster than that 11,000 years ago. It's slowing down as it moves through space. It picks up material, there's gas clouds there as it sort of collects in material and condenses it. It actually slows down so it was probably going a million miles an hour. You know, 10,000 years ago, when, it, when this explosion first happened, or even faster. So it's moving extremely fast, and right now it is just sort of a shock wave going through space that in many ways is actually helping to form new stars. This is the death of one star. It's really helping to form more stars. And what that is, is if you have clouds of gas and dust in space, something, again, something we'll be talking about in just a couple weeks, as they're sitting there, nice and happy, this dust cloud. It doesn't want to do anything. All of a sudden, this supernova shockwave smashes into it and starts it collapsing, starts forming a star. So something has to happen to that gas cloud to start forming a star. One of the things that can happen is actually the death of, an, of another star. Another star exploding and sending its material out into space can actually condense and get that, star, to get that new star starting to form, or a new group of stars. And 
So again, this is just a tiny portion. If you look at the entire, um, ne at the entire nebula, it goes out much further around, and it's more of a, it's a little more arc to circular shaped. This typical supernova remnants. So the pencil nebula, part of a super, part of a supernova remnant, or an explosion of a dying star, something our sun will never have to do. Our sun will never get to this kind of stage. Our sun will never blow itself up. It will expel its outer layers, and we'll talk about that as to what will happen to the sun. It'll become what we call a planetary nebula. It'll kind of poof off its outer layers, but it won't have the violent explosion that actually tears it apart. So something we don't have to look forward to happening right here. Questions? Questions? Alrighty. Well, we were finishing up the planets then, I believe. And I said I finished here. I think I was right about here. No, no, no. I'm current. We were looking at some of the jo we were looking at the Jovian planets. We're just about done with chapter seven here in our rush through chapters four through eight. We'll slow down again when we get to chapter nine. But we looked at the planets, we looked at Jupiter, we could see the great red spot, and we could measure its rotation based on that. Saturn had some features, but if you recall, there were much less as you got further out in the solar system. Jupiter had a lot of beautiful, bright features that really stood out. Saturn's were there, but were a lot more hazy. When you get out to Uranus, very few, but some detailed images here in the infrared and here in the visible part of the spectrum, you could actually see some and you could actually measure the rotational period. So it's, you need to find some kind of feature on the planet to watch it rotate. And in this case, when we talk about the Jovian planets, the outer planets, we, they don't have a solid surface. There's no place to land. There's no place to go stand on on the planet. You're talking about the rotation of the atmosphere. So how fast is the atmosphere itself rotating? And in these cases, Jupiter rotates in a little less than 10 hours. Saturn in a little more than 10 hours. Uranus and Neptune are about 14, 15 hours. So much, much quicker than the Earth rotates. Now the other thing that you see in the image here, down here, you actually get an image first view of the rings of Uranus. We looked at Saturn's rings. We saw a little bit on that. Chapter 8 really talks about the rings. So we'll go into that in much more detail. This is the first chance to actually see really an image of rings around something other than Saturn. Each of the Jovian planets has rings of some kind. None are, no, none are anywhere near as beautiful as Saturn's. Saturn has a nice, beautiful, stretched out rings that you can see very easily even with a relatively small telescope here on Earth. The other ones are not visible through a telescope, not directly visible through telescopes here on Earth. They're too dark, too thin, just too faint to be able to be seen, which is why none of them were discovered until the late 1970s. Saturns have been known for hundreds of years. Until the late 1970s, none of them were even known to have rings. But it is now known that all of them do. Now when you go out to Neptune, there's the large great dark spot on Neptune which was seen when Voyager got there, but it doesn't seem to be visible anymore. So it seems to have faded out that maybe some of these storms have just a limited lifespan or we just happen to catch this one at the very end. It's difficult to tell when you have your statistics of one. We've seen one storm on Neptune. We can tell that it was there when we were first able to detect it a few decades ago. It's now gone. Did they last for hundreds of years and we caught it at the tail end? 
Do they just last for a few years and that's how long? Until you can actually get enough time frame, be able to study enough of these storms and say, well, here we've studied now 500 storms and they have an ad, they on the average last, you know, 15 years, 30 years, you know, 100 years. You know what that number is. When you're trying to study just one, it doesn't tell you a lot. Plus, you don't know whether that's an unusual storm. You know, is that the really big storm that lasted a lot longer than the typical storms? Or a little storm and we're just not seeing the and we just haven't seen the other ones yet. But it's very similar to what we saw on Jupiter. We do see these large storms on all of the planets, all the Jovian planets. And much, much bigger than anything we're used to here on Earth. I mean, our giant hurricanes are nothing compared to, you know, Great Red Spot again was twice the size of the Earth. So much, much larger. All right, and I said we were almost done with chapter eight. Chapter eight goes on to the moons of the outer planets. We'll look at some of those. We'll look at the rings of the planets and the Plutoids. Pluto not being a planet, now they call sometimes they call them dwarf planets or Plutoids, which are objects that are like Pluto, but not quite a planet. So looking in, we'll start to go back into Jupiter. Jupiter has the four Galilean moons. Io is the innermost one. So closest planet to Jupiter, or closest planet, closest moon to Jupiter of, of the large ones. It is also the most volcanically active object in the solar system. It's got more active volcanoes on it than the Earth or any other object in the solar system. It's a lot smaller. It's only about the size of the Earth's moon. So it's not very big. It's about orbits Jupiter about the same distance as the Earth's moon, roughly. But it's extremely volcanically active. Now, why would it be volcanically active? It should be, if it's as small as the moon, should be all cooled off, right? Nothing should happen. Nothing should happen. There should be a dead world just like the moon. Well, those who have had planetary before know that Io is undergoing some very intense gravitational forces being so close to Jupiter, it is getting squished inside. As it tries to orbit, it tries to orbit around Jupiter. It's got a nice tidal bowl, just a uh, ah, nice tidal bulge associated with it. So it's actually strong enough. Jupiter's gravity is strong enough that there's no water to bulge. You can actually bulge the planet a little bit. And as you get other moons coming by and giving it little tugs, you end up kneading the interior. So essentially you're stretching it one way, then as it goes around it releases and stretches another direction. You know, just like kneading, uh, kneading dough, it's going to get warmer. If you need clay or dough, it starts out very cold. If you work with it, it's going to heat up and get much more pliable. Well, essentially, Jupiter is heating up the interior of this moon. And cause, that's what's causing it to still be hot inside. It shouldn't be. If you took that Io and put it in orbit around the Earth, it wouldn't have any volcanoes. It's only because it's so close to the intense gravity of Jupiter. But again, it has more active volcanoes. It also has zero craters. Now, even the Earth has a few craters. Io has absolutely none. So any craters that form, yes, it gets hit by stuff just like any other object in the solar system, but they get wiped out so quickly on astronomical timescales that instead of you here on Earth where they can last for hundreds or millions of years, you're down to talking about thousands of years. There's constantly material being spewn out of these volcanoes. You can see the plumes here is looked at at the side on one of them. The material just constantly fills in any impacts that occur. So it's had plenty of time to wipe out any craters that would have occurred on it. But it's all due to the tides, the tidal forces. No water on Io. You can imagine the immense water tides it would have if it did. 
but it actually can distort the object itself and cause it to heat up inside gravitationally. So Jupiter is what is causing these volcanoes really on its innermost moon. Jumping outward, Europa is the next moon outward, is the smallest of the Galilean satellites. Has no craters or hardly any craters. It does have a few, not too many. But its surface is ice, water ice. Regular water that you used to hear on Earth, Europa is made up of a lot of water ice. And actually if you split up Europa and took all the water on it, it's a little bit smaller than the Earth's moon, the the whole moon itself, there's actually more water on Europa than there is on the entire Earth. Now remember, that's because this has not only this crust that is very that is solid ice, but it has an ocean below it that is a lot of water until you get down to rock deep further down inside. But on the Earth, where's all the water? It's on the little tiny thin surface layer. It looks like it because we're confined to that surface layer, but if we could explore the entire Earth, you go down miles below the Earth's surface, there's no water. Right? And all the way down to the core, there's no water. It's all just that the water we see on Earth is because it's all covering the surface. If you dig down, not all that far, far for what we can dig, but not all that far compared to the thousands of miles you know, deep the Earth is, there's no water down there. Europa has a lot more water. If you could just condense all that, there's more water out there than we have on the Earth. It does not have a lot of craters either. Again, it said, said no craters. I still, it does have a couple. There's been images of a few craters. Most of them get wiped out just as easily. Oh, thank you. Most of them get wiped out just as easily as they do on Io. You get impacts that occur. Water, molten water flows up from below. Molten water. Cool, right? Maybe more of a slushy type thing, but you can think of it as the same kind of thing. You'd crack, you'd heat it up, and you'd have you know, not just liquid water flowing up, but almost like a slushy just flows out and fills up any kind of craters that form. So there aren't very many that form on, that would form on Io as well. So these two innermost moons are two of the relatively recent surfaces. And you get some interesting structures, but they're relatively recent surfaces as you zoom in on them that have been looked at. You know, there's one little section we're looking at zoomed in, zoomed in, zoomed in. You get all sorts of interesting ice structures on the surface where water has flowed at some point in the past. Now you can't have any liquid water on the surface. It would cool, it would, it would cool off real very much very quickly. So it would splash out there, solidify as ice, and fill up anything and be gone. It wouldn't actually exist as we have liquid water on the surface of the Earth. Below the surface, where it is protected, going down kilometers below the icy surface, so not just a thin, not a couple inches of ice, you're talking you know, miles of ice there. When you get down below that, there's actually a, a liquid ocean. There's actually an ocean of liquid water where it's warm enough down there and the pressures are enough that you can actually have liquid water. So it is one of the few places, in fact maybe the only other place in the solar system where liquid water is known to currently exist. Mars had liquid water, doesn't really have anything anymore. This is one that actually would ha- currently have liquid water. So. Right? If we ever want to go exploring, there's a source of water out further out in the solar system. You'd actually have a source of water that you know, is a lot bigger than what we have here on the Earth. Since you know, if you're going to go out exploring, if you want to go explore the moons of Jupiter, you've got to be able to you know, drink water. You know, so you're not after spending the years to get out there. All right, further out. 
Ganymede. Ganymede is the largest moon in the solar system. So of all the moons, it's actually the largest. Larger than Mercury, lar much larger than Pluto. It's kind of like the Earth's moon in a way. If you look at that uppermost image, it really looks a lot like our moon. Right? You've got a darker areas and lighter areas. So you've got a dark maria, you've got lighter highland type areas. So very similar to maybe what happened on the Earth's moon. And if you recall, that was what? Water, um, lava flooding. Big impacts, lava flooding them. Well, here the same kind of thing, except instead of being one astronomical unit away from the sun, you're five astronomical units. It's a heck of a lot colder out there. And that means that instead of molten rock filling things up, molten ice, right? Molten ice flowing, ice flows that would actually fill out and fill in these lower lying areas. So you could have a very similar thing that occurred on the Earth's moon, but again, instead of rock, it occurred with ice. And you'll see that as we get further out in the solar system, ices tend to take the place of what we see going on with rock. You know, the moon doesn't have much ice, so it wouldn't really have mattered. Mercury, Venus, no ices to be seen. But once you start getting out, in the, out further in the solar system, it's a lot cooler, and we start to see a much higher percentage of ice present. Now the furthest is Ganymede, of the four, of the four Galilean satellites. Ga Callisto is the furthest out. Similar to Ganymede, a little bit smaller, but as you start to get further and further out, you start to notice, look at that zoom in on its surface. Boy, it looks a lot like the moon. You're getting further away from Jupiter. You're getting a lot more rock. You're getting a lot more crating. You've got a lot less activity going on because of Jupiter's gravity. You're orbiting a lot further away from Jupiter. So all those craters that occurred are not getting wiped out the way they did on the innermost planets. You see a lot more craters. And it really it doesn't look all that different than some of the images of the surface of the moon. Maybe not quite as heavily cratered, but certainly impacts central impact with the central peak where something plowed into the crust there, to the crust of Callisto. So it's a much older surface because it has, it's not as close, because it's not as close to Jupiter, doesn't have, hasn't had the time to heat up, hasn't had that energy from gravity to be able to heat up. Again, I'm not going through all the little moons that Jupiter has, a whole bunch of little moons as well. And you can look at those, read, look at that, those in the textbook if you're interested in them. I'm concentrating kind of on the major, the major moons. Titan, jumping out to Saturn, has an atmosphere. It's the only moon with a significant atmosphere. So none of Jupiter's moons has any kind of atmosphere. <coughs> but now we're twice as far away from the sun as we were. And we have a much, an atmosphere that is actually thicker than the Earth, denser than the Earth, by a little bit, maybe about 50% denser than the Earth's atmosphere. It's actually also made up of almost the same stuff as our atmosphere, nitrogen, argon. One thing missing, right? No oxygen. But other than that, nitrogen, what's our atmosphere? Primarily we're breathing is nitrogen. Most of Titan's atmosphere is actually nitrogen as well. Argon is another significant component of our atmosphere, a percent or so. And it's, another, it's also here in Titan. Now why does Titan have an atmosphere when all these other moons and even some of these planets didn't have an atmosphere? It has more of an atmosphere than Mars. Mercury, the moon, didn't have any atmospheres. None of the moons of Jupiter, which were larger. 
some of those are larger, had any kind of, had any kind of atmosphere around it? Well, the idea is that even though it's small, it's same size, similar in size to the, the Galilean satellites we just looked at, it's a lot colder there. So those gas particles in the atmosphere are not moving near as fast. If they're not moving as fast, they're less likely to escape. So it's really that it's a lot colder out there. And that allows it to hold on to an atmosphere that it wouldn't otherwise. If you could bring Titan in, put it around the Earth, orbiting around the Earth, the atmosphere would be diffused out into space, slowly. It wouldn't just disappear, but it would heat it up because it's so much closer to the sun, and that would slowly diffuse out into space. Yeah? I'm sorry? Could we live? You'd still need, to, you'd need oxygen still. But other than that, you probably, there's no reason you wouldn't be able to. The pressure is a little bit more dense, but you know, you wouldn't, other than not being able to breathe, <laughs> man, a little, little difficult. You'd need a spacesuit, in other words. But you could, you could certainly land there. You could certainly something that you could form some kind of colony on a little bit easier than you could, say, on Venus. You know, the, uh, the conditions are not near as corrosive as, it was, as Venus's were. But yeah, you could certainly, you know, could you somehow, you know, terraform it? That's, you know, well beyond our technology right now, but could you somehow terraform it to get a more of an oxygen atmosphere? Maybe. The other problem would be that it, it is further out. It's also a lot colder. So it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be like wintertime. It's going to be like, you know, bitterly cold temperatures. You know, like liquid methane, so liquid, liquid gas, liquefied gas temperatures that you need. So it's very cold out there. So you would need some kind of heating, you'd need some kind of spacesuit, but yes, you could certainly, you'd survive a lot longer there than you would on, on something like Venus where your spacesuit would get eaten away in a relatively short amount of time. So this picture taken here was taken from, hmm, I don't remember if that was Voyager or if that was the Cassini spacecraft. Could have been either of them. When it was only 4,000 kilometers away. So 4,000 kilometers compared to how many millions of kilometers away Saturn is, Saturn and Titan are. But even at that distance, we don't see anything. Similar distances, we've been looking at pictures of the other planet, other moons. There's nothing, there's nothing to see there. That's not the surface. We're seeing clouds in the atmosphere. Like Venus, it's completely shrouded in clouds. So we do not see anything. So we really don't see anything on the surface there. But we've been able to, we've actually had, do I have the picture of it? Yep. When the Cassini spacecraft went to Saturn, one of the things it took was a lander to actually go and look at the surface of Titan because we can't see it from the Earth. We couldn't see it from the Voyager spacecraft. Cassini itself could not observe the surface of Titan. Yeah, you could do radar images and get some ideas, but to actually get pictures, you couldn't do that. This is the Huygens lander, which actually left the spacecraft, landed on the surface of Titan, was able to take images. Looks about like Mars. Looks about like pictures of Venus that we've looked at over the last couple of, last couple of classes. The interesting thing on the other side is that you've actually got some that look like maybe there's some water flows. Looks like water flows here. Some kind of waters, rivers, almost some river structures. Well, the temperature is much too cold for liquid water. Okay, the surface temperature at that temperature, you know, you're talking hundreds of degrees below zero. Yep. Water's not going to stay liquid very long. You throw some liquid water out there, it freezes you know, instantaneously. But it's at the right temperature for methane. It's cold enough that methane could actually be a liquid on its surface. You could have a river of methane or a lake of methane. 
And in fact, it suggested that you could have, you know, lakes and rivers of methane. You can almost have a methane cycle the way you have a water cycle on Earth. That it could, you know, methane evaporates, clouds of methane, rains out methane. So same kind of thing that happens on Earth with water, but instead going on with methane on the surface of Titan. And we do see some evidence. Once we got down there, you can actually see some ideas that maybe there are, you know, rivers and channels and all of that that you see on Earth with water that we're seeing here on Titan. Now, just to be confusing, after Titan you do Triton. Triton goes out two planets. We kind of skipped Uranus. This goes out through Neptune, which is the other last of the lar really large moons. Triton has a very unusual orbit in that everything in the orbit, if you can imagine going up, you know, launching a spacecraft, going up above the solar system, defining above as being our north, you know, going up north, looking down on the north pole of the Earth, everything rotates around the sun counterclockwise. So Mercury orbits counterclockwise, Venus, Earth, Mars, all the planets do. Um, all the moons of the planets do. So the moon orbits the Earth counterclockwise while the Earth orbits the sun counterclockwise. All of the other objects do that, except for Triton. Triton is the only object in the solar system, major object, there are some smaller ones, but the only major moon, major planet that actually orbits backwards. It actually orbits clockwise. And like some of the others, like some of the other ones we looked at on Jupiter, Triton also has a very active surface. It orbits very, very close to Neptune. That might be some of the reason that it has heated up. It may have the ices in it are very good at absorbing the radiation from the sun and may play a part in heating it up well. And in terms of keeping it active and wiping out, yeah, there's a few craters there. There's a, one example where a crater is hit on top of this frozen lake, but not a lot of them. Not a lot of craters as we saw elsewhere in the solar system, in the moon, on Mercury, on Mars, on some of the moons of Jupiter. Not a lot of craters present here. It also has geysers. We're, we're getting really, really cold out there. So your geysers, you know, aren't, you know, steam and hot water as you get here on Earth, they're nitrogen. So you're cold enough that you're talking about liquid nitrogen temperatures. So the nitrogen is there and it's at the right temperature. You heat it up a little bit it can form a geyser just of nitrogen. And again, that also has played some uh, part in its surface features and played some part in wiping out the craters. Again, there's very few craters present on it. Now, Triton, we've actually seen Titan, Titan around Saturn and the Jovi, Jovian moons, we've seen a lot more detail. Triton, we've only really been able to observe with the one flyby we've had. So Voyager 2, which went out to Uranus and Neptune, is the only source of really nice images that we have. We have not been back out to the outer two, those outer two planets. Now, rings, again, I told you they've all got rings. Saturn has the most detail on them. These are ones that you can see even with a relatively, not a teeny tiny telescope. Remember Galileo had those little tiny telescopes that were, you know, a centimeter or so in size. He couldn't really quite pick up the rings, but he knew that something was going on there. A little bit bigger, even a few inch telescope will be able to discern Saturn's rings. If you get a telescope that's you know, six or eight inches, you can easily see the rings of, rings of Saturn. They're not a solid sheet. They're split up into different rings. In fact, you've got the A ring, the B ring, the C ring, and it actually keeps going on. You've got D and E and F and G as you split them up in more detail. But they're actually, the rings are made up of individual particles. So each of those, each of those rings is made up of millions of individual little pieces of ice and rock that are orbiting around Saturn. So you can think of them as 
little, as a bunch of little moons put together there. They can range in size, you know, from tiny particles of dust to things maybe the size of a person, you know, big big boulder. Not real, no gigantic things, nothing that are kilometers and kilometers across. They also have a ga- have gaps in them. So there's some there's some places where there's a lot more ring particles. As you can see up here, here's the A ring. Then there's this gap where there's not no particles, but a lot less particles, the Cassini division. And then you go into the B ring and the C ring further in. So there are some areas where particle where ring particles have been kind of cleared out. And that's done gravitationally by the moons of Saturn. Saturn's moons, as they orbit around, and you get that moon that orbits, if this orbits every day, say it takes one day for it to go around once and come back, and you have a moon that's orbiting every two days, well, every two days, that particle and the moon are lined up, and it's getting an extra gravitational tug. And it sort of serves to clear out certain areas of the rings where things line up like that. So every two times that moon has moved around, that ring particle's gone around, or every one time that moon's gone around, the ring particle's gone around twice, and it gets that extra little bit of a tug that just empties out this section. And we see that not just one, but you see that the detail gets not just there's one case like that, but you get other, other areas and other resonances that work out that actually kind of wipe out and give the rings their distinctive pattern. Now, just to look quickly at the other ones, Jupiter does have a small ring. Not ne- nothing near like what um, Saturn has. This was not discovered until the late 1970s. So we knew about Jupiter and we'd looked at Jupiter through the telescope since the time of Galileo. Galileo didn't even see a hint of this. Many telescopes up until the 50s and 60s still never saw any sign of a ring. So it wasn't until much later that the ring was detected. But it does. It's just got a very small, thin ring, just a single ring. So a good question is, why does Saturn have such nice rings and why does Jupiter not? Jupiter is a much bigger planet. You might think that it would have bigger rings. And it is a very good question. It's not one I can really give you an answer for. There's still a good debate going on as to how new Saturn's rings are. It's always been thought maybe that they formed in the last few million years or 100 million years, relatively recently compared to 4.5 billion years worth of solar system history. But Now there's stuff that says that maybe they're older. Maybe they've actually been around since the formation of Saturn. So it's a good question. If that's the case, then why don't the other? What has gone on differently on Saturn that causes it to have this nice bright set of rings? But none of the other Jovian planets, where they all got rings, they don't have anything like that. Now we'll look at some of the other ones. That's Jupiter. Rings of Uranus are even more complicated. Very thin, incredibly thin compared to those of Saturn. Saturn's were all spread out. Here the rings are, you know, very, the biggest ring is right there. There's another ring, not much in between them. Another ring, another ring, another ring, another ring. And in fact, you can see there were five that were originally detected, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, and Epsilon. So those five were detected. There was another one that was detected later, and then a few more been finding even more fainter rings later on. They were found quite by accident. What astronomers were looking at was Uranus was going to pass right in front of a star called an occultation. So it was going to block out the light of the star. Well, that's interesting. Well, first of all, it's cool it's going to happen, right? It's going to have to have perfectly lined up for it to happen. But it tells us something about the atmosphere of Uranus. We can watch it, the starlight disappear behind the atmosphere. And it's an experiment we can do to study it and they find out you know, what is the atmosphere of Uranus like? How dense is it further up? When does that star really disappear? 
So astronomers were watching for that and were going to watch that, what we call, say, what we call an occultation. What happened was that they turned on their instruments <coughs> early. So they started, okay, we're going to turn them on a little bit early. And you watched and you'd watch the starlight and you'd get the same amount of starlight coming. And then all of a sudden they had a dip in the, star, the amount of starlight for a short time. Long before the occultation would occur, there was a dip. And then a little while later there was another one. Three, four, five. So this, the light, why, why was the light disappearing at these five specific times? And you know, if you turned your tele, if you turned your instrumentation on here, you never would have found it. Wouldn't have found it until Voyager probably got there, which was an, almost a decade later. But because they turned their instrument on, instrumentation on, getting things set up early enough, they were able to record this, and that's actually the discovery of the rings. The starlight, star was pass, starlight was passing behind. Star was passing behind the ring, as it as it approached as Saturn as Uranus approached it, and was blocking out some of the light of that star, making it a little bit fainter, making it a little bit fainter and fainter and fainter and fainter. Each time it blocked out a little bit of light from it. Now the confirmation you had to wait until after the occultation was over. Then Saturn, uh, keep going Saturn. How about Uranus would block out the planet, block out the star, wouldn't see any light for a while. When it comes back out on the other side, the theory at the time would be, okay, maybe we're seeing a set of rings. If we're seeing a set of rings and it's not just something in our instruments, I should see this exact same pattern on the other side just flipped. So once we pass the planet here, we should see this exact same pattern coming out the other side and that's what they saw. That as you came out here, you had this dip and then you had that one and that one and try to match it up as close as I can here. You saw the exact opposite pattern, leading you to believe, okay, here's one ring around the planet, here's another ring, third ring, fourth ring, fifth ring. So that was how, sort of how they were discovered. They would have been detected once Voyager got there anyway. Voyager being much closer would have been able to pick them up. But here we, were, we actually found them a decade early, but again, quite, quite by accident that we happened to turn the instrumentation on early enough. If you just looked at this little section, which was still, you know, 20 minutes before anything would have occurred, you never would have detected them. Neptune, again, very, very faint rings discovered by the Voyager spacecraft that went out there. So this is sort of a photograph of it looking backwards. And you're seeing the, the rings illuminated from the scattered, the scattered sunlight that's coming through them. You get some rings, you get some partial rings. But again, unlike Saturn's where they were very beautiful rings, Everything else, you know, Uranus's are very dark, faint, hard to see. Jupiter's isn't much. Neptune's aren't much. Saturn's the only one that has those re that really bright, beautiful ring set. And it's still a good question as to why it why it does. And on to Pluto, everybody's favorite, right? Pluto was discovered in 1930. It was looked for to explain the orbit of Uranus and Neptune that weren't orbiting. The observations at the time said that Uranus and Neptune were off a little bit. So it was thought, oh, maybe there's another planet out there, planet X, that is disturbing them gravitationally. You know, tugging on them here and there and causing them to not quite be in the orbit that we would think them to be. It turns out now that those were, you know, there were measurement issues and problems with that. There really weren't any irregularities in the orbit. The orbits are actually perfect according to Newton and Einstein's theories at that distance from the sun. But 
at the time we didn't know that we were searching searching for Pluto in a big exhaustive search to try to find this object. It turns out that Pluto is smaller than our moon. So it's not big enough to have gravitation, to have any gravitation significant gravitational effect on any other object out there. So it's much too small. But it was a major search to find it. And from 1930 through what 2005, 2006, Pluto was the ninth planet. After that, oops, yep, put that up. After that, it was determined that it was not it was not going to be a planet anymore. And it wasn't really picking on Pluto specifically. What it was was that astronomers went through and they were starting to find other objects out there that looked a lot like Pluto. In fact, some of them were bigger than Pluto. They were actually out in that area that had never been detected before. And it became a point. Do we have now nine planets, ten planets, eleven planets? Or do we have to define exactly what a planet is? A planet had never been defined before. You know, what exactly is a planet? You know, you know, it's one of those things, you, well, you know a planet when you see it, right? But there's no actual formal definition. So uh, you know, about eight years ago, they made a definition to say exactly what a planet has to do. So a planet has to orbit the sun. You know, what characteristics does the object have to have to be a planet? So in order to be a planet, you've got to orbit the sun. Well, Pluto fits, right? Pluto orbits the sun, that's correct. But this does eliminate things that are bigger than Pluto that don't orbit the sun, so you're not going to call the moon a planet. You're not going to call the moons of Jupiter, which are bigger than several of the planets. You know, you're not going to call them planets. It eliminates certain things. It has to be, uh, let's see, it has to be large enough, how do I explain it, to be in a, to pull itself into a spherical shape. to pull itself into a sphere. It has to have enough gravity that it compresses and it makes it spherical. Very small objects can be irregular. You know, they can be oblong and stretched out in one side just because their gravity isn't strong enough. If you get a large enough object like the Earth, it pulls itself into a sphere. If you, the moon is big enough to pull itself into a sphere. Pluto's big enough to pull itself into a sphere. So Pluto's got two out of three. Problem is number three. Number three says that it has to be able to clear its orbit. Meaning that there can't be a lot of other objects out there around like it. So we don't have a lot of big objects around the Earth. Right? There aren't a lot of you know, planetary sized objects or even moon sized objects around the Earth. The Earth has cleared them all out. It's either absorbed them into it, they become part of the Earth by impact, or they've passed close to the Earth, you know, and got flung out of the solar system altogether. But it's been able to clear its area. There's not a lot of, yeah, there's some, there's little asteroids and things orbiting around us, that's correct. But most of the big objects have all since, over billions of years, been kicked out of the solar system. So Earth orbits pretty much by itself. So does Venus, so does Jupiter, so does Saturn. Pluto doesn't. Pluto orbits out in, at the edge of what we call the Kuiper Belt, which is a whole bunch of objects that are just like Pluto. Not Pluto is one of the largest, actually the second largest of them, but there's a whole bunch out there that are similar. It hasn't cleared that whole orbit. So it sort of fails in this definition. So 
Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune fit all of them. Pluto doesn't quite make this. Ceres, the largest of the asteroids, doesn't make it either. It admits it's these two. It does orbit the Sun. It is big enough to pull itself into a sphere, but it has not been able to clear its orbit. So it has not been able to clear its orbit. The asteroid belt is right in the middle of it. So, why Pluto's not a planet anymore? Pluto does have a moon, well, several moons actually now, that was discovered in 1978. It is locked to Pluto the way the moon is locked to the Earth. So it's actually locked to it, so it all orbits the same direction, always points towards it. It's very big compared to Pluto. So it's large, it's only about a sixth of, sixth of the size of Pluto, so it's pretty big compared to Pluto. Several other moons have since been discovered relatively recently and even as early as recently as last year another moon. I think there's, there's one more that was discovered. I think we discovered the fifth one about a year ago. So Pluto actually has five moons. But again, definition wise it's no longer, no longer a planet and that's why we don't consider it as such anymore. Yeah, so sir. Uh, Sorry. Yeah, those are, the best, those are the best images we have of Pluto. Even with the most powerful telescopes we have, you know, there's Pluto and its moons, there's you know, a much higher resolution, you can actually separate out them. But you know, what does Pluto look like on the surface? We don't know yet. Pluto's so far away, so small, so tiny. Now there is a spacecraft on its way to Pluto. The New Horizons spacecraft is there, it's supposed to be there 2015 I believe. So about three more years, we'll actually have a spacecraft that's going to zip by Pluto. It's not going into orbit or anything. It's going to fly by it. So we'll get a few days worth of nicer, much nicer images of Pluto. And something like we do with Uranus and Neptune now, something we can study for you know, decades afterwards. But that'll be our first real good look at, at Pluto and hopefully some better understanding of it. Now, as I said, Pluto is one of those objects in the Kuiper Belt which is sort of out there just out the, off the edge of Neptune. We discovered the first one other than Pluto which was discovered in the 30s and never would have been discovered unless we were undergoing this very careful search of the sky looking for this planet. They weren't discovered until the 1990s. Now instead of just Pluto out there, there's about 700 objects that have been discovered. One of them, Eris, is actually a little bit larger than Pluto. So is it planet, again, is it planet 10 or are we down to 8 is part, is part of the thing. When you started finding ones that are a little bit larger than Pluto, what about the next one you find and the next one you find? As you start to find more and more that are maybe not quite as large but are close. So you're starting to find a whole belt of similar objects like we did with the asteroid belt a couple hundred years ago. You know, the first one was discovered, Ceres, okay, it's a new planet. But as we started to find more and more and more, it sort of got taken off the planetary rolls. It was no longer considered a planet. But this is Eris, an image, again, not a very nice image, you know, but even with Hubble Space Telescope and details that you're looking at, you're not going to be able to see anything good when you're looking that far out at the edge of the solar system. All those nice, beautiful images that I've shown you of you know, Mars, Mercury, Venus, Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, the moons, all of those were taken by the spacecraft out there. Don't think any of those, except for the one of Jupiter. I showed you one of Jupiter, a very faint one with its moons. All of those were taken by spacecraft that actually went out to those planets to observe them. Nothing was taken from, from Earth. 
And then here's just sort of a collection, which are called, some of them are called the dwarf planets or the plutoids. But just to give you a sense of scale here, there's the Earth. That's us. There's the Moon. Pluto is significantly smaller than the Moon. You got actually an image there. You've got, you know that there's some light and dark areas. Again, in a few years we should know a heck of a lot more about it. Eris is a little bit larger. Some of the other ones are comparable in size, if not, you know, not exactly the same, but are comparable in size. So they're sometimes called the Plutoids, those objects that orbit out there. Technically, Pluto is classified as a dwarf planet along with Eris, along with Ceres, as some of the very largest objects in the solar system that aren't quite, that aren't quite planets. Questions? Question? Yeah. That one, it probably depending on its composition, it's not, it's not gravitationally strong enough to be pulled into a spherical shape. So it's just distorted in shape and that's how it happened to form. There's just not enough matter there to have condensed it into a sphere. But yeah, there are some that are stretched out. So under the definition of what we call a dwarf planet, a dwarf planet has to do two things. A dwarf planet has to orbit the sun and has to be large enough to pull it into a spherical shape. So you could go. Dwarf planet, dwarf planet, dwarf planet, no. Not a dwarf planet. It's not big enough to pull itself into a spherical shape. Some of the other ones might happen to be spherical just depending on how they formed too. They might still not have enough mass for that. So, questions on our journey through the solar system? Other questions? Yeah, yeah. So like when um, in like elementary school, middle school, when teachers are like teaching about the solar system, mm-hmm. It would depend on how they wanted to do it. I mean, Pluto is certainly an important part of the solar system. Just if you're counting the planets now, astronomers do not consider Pluto to be a planet to be a planet anymore. Okay. Well, let me get the introduction up. I got a few minutes. I'm going to go ahead and do the introduction for Chapter Nine, and then we'll really get. I won't really get much into it until Wednesday. So. Chapter 9 is jumping into our first, first star. We'll look at the, chapter 9 we'll look at the sun and sort of our one star that we can really study close up and see in detail. You don't see images like this of any other star in the universe and it's only because we happen to be so close to it. We looked at the, we looked at the, we looked at the pictures earlier in the last chapter and mentioned how you can't really see a lot of detail on Pluto. Can't really see a lot of detail on, you know, Eris. We can't see a lot about them from the Earth. Well, the stars are much, much further away. Yeah, they're a lot bigger, but they're so many times further away that to a telescope, all the star, all any star looks like is really a point of light. So you can't distinguish any kind of features directly on it. The sun is the only one where you can. We're actually so close to it that we can map it in much more detail and we can see, you know, Solar prominences coming off. You see some material coming off here. You see lighter areas, darker areas on the surface of the sun. So it's the one star that we can study, again, in great detail. And starting in chapter 10, we kind of get away from the basics here and in the solar system and move out to look at the the universe in general. So what we're going to look at in this chapter is kind of split the sun up. It's one of those stars, the one star we can study in great detail. So what is it like? What are the properties of the sun? And then we'll split it up. Look at the interior. What is it like deep inside the sun? You know, again, you can't, can't take a trip down there to find out. It's 6,000 degrees at the surface and it only goes up from there. 
hitting 15 million when you get down to the core. Little too warm. Your spacesuit's not going to protect you there. So how do we learn about the interior? And what do we learn about the atmosphere? The atmosphere is the parts we actually can see. So solar interior you can't even see. So not only can you not go experiment with it or get a sample of it, but you can't even see it, at least not directly. And then we'll look at the atmosphere of the sun. Again, we can see those parts of the sun. And the active sun is, we've looked at some of the flares, we looked at some of the coronal mass ejections. I think we had a picture of the day for that a while back. We looked at one of the coronal mass ejections coming off, material coming off the sun. Well, we'll look at that. That's the active sun, the sunspots, the solar activity cycle that we're reaching the peak of right now. And then finally, the heart of the sun. What is going down deep in the core, what's going on down deep in the core that gives us all of the energy that we see from the sun? So, let's give you up the basic properties there. Really, sun is large, much, much more massive than the earth. Very low density. Now I have to compare the numbers here, 1400 kilograms per cubic meter. In those units, water has a density of 1000. So it's not that much more dense than water, overall. It's got an incredibly dense core, much denser than anything we're used to here on Earth. But it's got very gaseous outer layers, and when you average them together, you get something that's really not that different from the density of some of the outermost planets and, and water. It rotates about once a month depending on where you are. 25 days if you're at the equator, 36 days if you're at the poles. So it doesn't rotate. It's not a solid surface. It rotates differently. It rotates quicker at the equator and slower at the poles. And again, some of the numbers there, I don't expect you to memorize the numbers. It's the ideas of some of it. So luminosity, some number of watts that it's putting out is not an important number. The mass is not an important number. It's more we'll use that as a comparison when we talk about other stars in comparison to the sun. So I'll come back and pick up here on Wednesday and we'll go into the sun in a little bit more, little bit more detail. Questions, questions? Have a good rest of the day. I have my review. I wasn't able to